Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. My brethren and sisters, I am grateful for that prayer given by Brother Olson. I am thankful for the beauty of this day and for the peace of this hour. I seek the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you shall also have that inspiration, that the Spirit may bear witness in your hearts of the testimony which I hope to give, a testimony neither erudite nor profound, but heartfelt and sincere. I have in my hand a very interesting book. I prize it highly. The binding is relatively new, but the body of the book is more than a century old. It was published in New York in 1854. The introduction, written by one General James Shields, contains the following. I quote, In 1850, while the author was on his deathbed, he placed in my hands a manuscript with the injunction that after his decease I should have it published for the benefit of his family. He soon after departed this life, leaving his orphaned children in a destitute condition. I therefore give it to the public just as I received it from the hands of the author and with the sincere hope for the sake of his destitute children that it may meet with an indulgent and generous reception. The book bears the title History of Illinois. It was written by Governor Thomas Ford. My mind was attracted to it yesterday by a radio announcement that Illinois begins this month the commemoration of 150 years of statehood. The legislature has appropriated $2 million to draw the attention of people everywhere to the history of the prairie state. As you are well aware, a very substantial part of that early history is linked with the history of the church. Governor Ford's book makes this abundantly clear. Among other things, he sets forth with considerable detail the story of the imprisonment of Joseph Smith in Carthage jail and his death with his brother Hiram on June 27, 1844. Summarizing the account of the prophet's death, he writes and mark these words. Thus fell Joe Smith, the most successful impostor in modern times, a man who, though ignorant and coarse, had some great natural parts which fitted him for temporary success, but which were so obscured and counteracted by the inherent corruption and vices of his nature 
that he never could succeed in establishing a policy which looked to permanent success. Such was the appraisal of the governor of Illinois, whose name might well have been one of unremembered oblivion, except for his connection with the death of the man he consigned to so dismal a future. There was written in that same period another appraisal by an intimate witness of those same events. The language is markedly dissimilar from that of the government. Listen to these words. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, lived great, and he died in great in the eyes of God and his people. And like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood, and so has his brother Hiram. Their innocent blood is an ambassador for the religion of Jesus Christ that will touch the hearts of men among all nations. This latter appraisal spoken as prophecy is of the substance of two earlier ones, each a prophecy remarkable in its content, the one spoken by an angel, the other by the voice of revelation. On the occasion of the first visit to the hill Cumorah, Joseph Smith was instructed by Moroni. He was shown a vision, and the angel said, among other things, and I quote from Oliver Cowdery, Your name shall be known among the nations, for the work which the Lord will perform by your hands shall cause the righteous to rejoice and the wicked to rage. With one it shall be had in honor, with another in reproach. Yet with these it shall be a terror because of the great and marvelous work which shall follow the coming forth of this fullness of my gospel. These words were uttered in 1823. Joseph was then 17 years of age, younger perhaps than anyone in this hall today. He was the son of an inconspicuous farmer, a boy largely without schooling, friends, or money. One can scarcely imagine an individual with smaller prospects for, accomplish, for accomplishing a work which should go forth among the nations, causing the righteous to rejoice and the wicked to rage. Now let me take you to one other statement with which you're familiar. This was uttered in March of 1839. The saints had fled Missouri under the threats of an extermination order. They had not a piece of land in all the world which they could till unmolested. They had not a house or a barn, not a schoolroom or a chapel they could call their own. Their only possessions were those they had taken with them in their flight across the bottomlands of the Mississippi into Illinois. Behind them in the town of Liberty, their prophet remained a prisoner, bereft, maltreated, cold, and miserable through the long months of winter. In that time of desolation, Joseph cried, O God, where art thou? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, 
Behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people. And then came these remarkable words of prophecy, among the greatest, I think, to be found anywhere in Scripture. The ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name, and fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee while the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand. I have thought of these remarkable words of prophecy in contrast with Governor Ford's miserable appraisal of the future of Joseph's work while dedicating houses of worship in many areas of the world as many as seven in a single week. These beautiful buildings have become a refutation of the words of the prophet's detractors and evidence that the ends of the earth have inquired after his name. I thought again of these same prophetic statements while listening to the testimony recently of an elderly man in Japan. For nearly 50 years, he had withstood the insults of family and neighbors. The gospel restored through the prophet Joseph his only comfort and strength for half a century. I have thought of them again recently on Okinawa, in a chapel erected in the shadow of the once bloody Shuri Line, when a woman stood, a strong and able woman, a widow, and with tears falling from her cheeks, spoke in the language of her people words of grateful testimony for the prophet of this dispensation. They came again to mind as a handful of us gathered early of a morning in the quiet sanctity of the American military cemetery on the outskirts of Manila in the Philippines. There, amid the crosses, row on row, we invoked the blessings of the Lord upon our efforts to establish missionary work in that land. Among those who spoke on that occasion was a brown-skinned, brown-eyed Filipino man, the first to become an elder of the church in the Philippines. Many years before, he had found in a garbage can a dog-eared copy of the Reader's Digest, He had read therein a condensation of the book Children of God with its story of Joseph Smith. There he was described as a prophet. The boy lost that old magazine, but he never got out of his mind the word prophet. Could there actually have been a prophet in this generation, he asked himself? War rolled over the Philippines, and then after long and anxious years, the Americans returned. Clark Field was reestablished, and David Lagman found employment there. He learned that his supervisor, an American Air Force officer, was a Mormon. Timidly, he asked about the prophet. Yes. There was a prophet. Instructions and baptism followed. Today that man is counselor to the mission president. 
and there burns in his heart as there burns in the hearts of some 3,000 of his Filipino brethren and sisters a testimony of the divine calling of the prophet Joseph. It was only two or three weeks ago that I heard him stand and bear witness of that testimony. I have thought of these contrasting predictions concerning the martyred leader of God's work in this dispensation as I have sat in meetings in Korea and Taiwan and Hong Kong, as men and women have spoken in Hangul and Mandarin and Cantonese. I recently walked in the shelter of an umbrella in the heavy rain of Saigon, talking with a wonderful Vietnamese friend a man I ordained an elder a year ago, the first of his people to receive the Melchizedek priesthood. He pleaded for an opportunity to translate into Vietnamese the Book of Mormon, the testament of the new world which had come through the instrumentality of Joseph Smith. On that same occasion, I sat with a battered G.I., a young man who once had served a mission in a land of Europe and who now had been walking lonely jungle patrols, knowing that any moment there might be the whine of an enemy bullet, the deadly crash of a claymore mine, the terrifying roar of mortars. But he didn't want to speak of these things. He spoke of the richness of the gospel, of the value of the priesthood, of the strength that comes through the testimonies of his associates in the church. Again, I was reminded in Singapore when in a little gathering a man stood and told of his childhood in, Har in Harbin, Manchuria, the son of white Russian refugee parents who wandered from city to city, from nation to nation, until they had reached Australia. There this young man had heard the gospel as restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. It had changed his life, and with deep appreciation he bore a touching testimony. And then in India, way down in the south of India, we listened to the talk of a good man, an educated man, an unselfish man, who was giving nearly all that he learned, earned from his employment to provide schooling for some 200 children who otherwise might have been without education. Years before, somehow, somewhere, he had found a copy of the pamphlet, Joseph Smith tells his own story. It had touched his life, and for 12 years he had written letters pleading for baptism. He knew that he would be cast out, that his friends would leave him, that he would be left alone. This happened, but his letters still breathe the same warm testimony, the same enduring appreciation for the gospel. And so it goes round the world. Just one more example. We were recently at Berchtesgaden that lovely place in the Bavarian Alps in the shadow of Hitler's eagle's nest. There, possibly in the same hall where a quarter of a century ago, evil men gathered and planned the misery and destruction of millions of people and scores of nations, we gathered and bore our testimonies one to another.
We sang that great hymn, Praise to the Man Who Communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer. Among those who spoke in that inspiring conference was a sandy-haired, freckled-faced man, a quiet man, a major in the Air Force, now recently made a lieutenant colonel. He didn't look like a hero. The real ones seldom do. But he has been written up and acclaimed in publications that have gone over the world as a man of remarkable courage in the Vietnam War. He has been decorated by the President of the United States. Go back and read his story sometime, the story of Major Bernard Fisher, who did what seemed to be the impossible in risking his life to save a fellow airman in the battle for the airstrip at Atau. We called on Brother Fisher to speak at Berchtesgaden. He didn't want to talk about Vietnam. In quiet and measured words, he bore his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of the value of the priesthood, of the divine calling of the prophet Joseph Smith, these and others like them have been among my personal experiences as I have met recently with saints around the world in Iran and Turkey, in Lebanon and Greece, in Italy and Spain, in most of the lands of Europe and South America. How utterly uninspired was Governor Thomas Ford when he penned this book to try to raise a few dollars to care for his destitute family. How utterly destitute his own discernment when he wrote that Joseph Smith never could succeed in establishing a system of policy which looked to permanent success in the future. How true in contrast the words of Moroni to the 17-year-old boy on the hill Camorra in 1823. Your name shall be known among the nations, for the work which the Lord will perform by your hands shall cause the righteous to rejoice. How prophetic the words of revelation that came in the misery and loneliness of Liberty Jail in 1839. The ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name, and fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee while the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand. To these testimonies I add my witness and my testimony that he was called and ordained as the prophet of this dispensation, the anointed servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom God the Father and the Son appeared in an interview as personal and as real as is my interview with you this day. Followed by a veritable cloud of witnesses who restored the keys and powers held by prophets and apostles of old. Joseph the seer, I love to dwell on his memory, dear the chosen of God and the friend of man. He brought the priesthood back again. 
He gazed on the past and the future too and opened the heavenly world to view. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.